Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Dimitri Nikasis joins the show for a conversation about Linear B. Dr. Nikasis is an archaeologist who's interested in early Greek societies and is an expert on Linear B. He is professor and chair of the Department of Classics at the University of Colorado Boulder, based in the U.S. He is a director of the Western Argolid Regional Project and is author of the monograph, Individuals and Society in Mycenaean Pylos, which was published by Brill. And Professor Nikasis joins the show today from the U.S. Welcome to the show, Dimitri. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So to create sufficient background and context for the conversation, Dimitri, and then we'll We'll work our way into the details. What is the Linear B? So Linear B is a script or writing system that was used in mainland Greece and on the island of Crete from about 1400 to 1200 BCE. Um, it's a writing system that we know was primarily used to write on clay tablets and clay ceilings um, and was used as far as we know almost exclusively for administrative texts. So texts that record um, goods and labor uh, that concern palatial administrators. So this was a writing system that was used by um, palatial administrators um, who were resident in palaces at places like Mycenae, Pylos, Knossos, and Hanya. Um, It's possible that it was used for other purposes, but Um, For the moment, it really looks like its primary purpose was administrative. You mentioned Crete. I believe you used the term mainland Greece. That was a sense I got. Um, Yeah. What's the first, what's the, uh, not necessarily the first, but what's the earliest attestation of it? Um, So, so when, when you and scholars have looked through the, the evidence that have looked through the linear, linear B, that corpus, and we'll, we'll get into what that corpus is. Uh, is a bit bit more. Um, what what is where where is it believed that it was first used? Um, that's in in the evidence. That's in the records. Uh, well, like many things with linear B, that's a little bit controversial. Although I think there's a consensus now forming that the earliest linear B is attested um, at the site of Knossos on the island of Crete. Uh, a scholar, a Belgian scholar named Jan Riesen, argued. Uh, about 20 years ago, that uh, there's one particular deposit um, at Knossos called the the, the deposit from the Room of the Chariot Tablets, um, which John Chadwick, who had been involved in the decipherment of Linear B, had argued um, that the tablets from the Room of the the Chariot Tablets were school texts. They were texts of a a scribal school. Um, But that argument has not been successful or popular. And uh, Dreesen made a really persuasive argument um, that this was the first deposit um, that we know about um, of Linear B. And he dated it to the beginning of the 14th century BCE. So around 1390 um, BCE or so. and there's some people who disagree with that interpretation. 
Um, but I think almost everybody working in Linear B thinks that Dreesen is right. The, the, the problem with the argument is not anything having to do with um, Dreesen, but just the fact that the palace of Knossos was excavated over 100 years ago, and the way it was excavated and the records that were kept make it very difficult to nail down archaeological arguments in a way that's going to convince everybody. Uh, the one thing I also should have added about my definition of linear B, thinking about it, is that um, it was deciphered in 1952 by Michael Ventris, um, an English architect, and Ventris proved that linear B was used to write the Greek language. So an early form of the Greek language, but something that's recognizably Greek to people who know ancient Greek. You might have brought it up in your first uh, response, but but in, in either case, I want to make sure it's 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 in the episode or and at least emphasized. Um, what what civilization or civilizations is it uh, associated with? Yeah, so the linear B is associated with a, an archaeological culture that we call Mycenaean. Um, so I think there's a tendency to think of the Mycenaeans as a, a group of people, but actually we don't know what they called themselves. We don't know that they identified themselves as a group. Um, it's an entirely modern terminology that we use. So Minoan is the same way, right? Minoan is a word that, that, that moderns made up, um, and Mycenaean is a term that moderns made up um, uh, to describe this archeological culture. So I think it's really better to think of it as an archeological shorthand um, right, we don't we don't know what these people call themselves, or, or we. I'm repeating myself, but yeah, we don't know that they call them that they identified themselves as a group. But we don't, and if they did, we don't know what they called themselves. Um, you picked up on my civilization or civilizations in the in the question. Crete, right? But the easy thing is to say, you know, linear A, um, the predecessor of linear B is, is Minoan, and linear B is is Mycenaean. Um, if we're if we're thinking in kind of broad categories, that's the way to think about it. Okay, so let's let's talk about let's touch base on that for for chronology and as a reference point for everybody listening. Linear A was covered on the show recently, so there is an episode that acts as an overview on the linear A. The guest was Dr. Brent Davis of the University of Melbourne. That was published on August 18th, 2021 as a, as a date reference point for, for everybody. So, so to follow up on the, the, the latter point you just made there, Dimitri, so can, can you speak about um, the chronology, what scholars know about the chronology between linear A and linear B, and if there's any known or inferred relationship or association between those two writing systems? Yeah, there is a relationship. Uh, there isn't a chronological overlap, basically. Um, so linear A, the last, is used until the end of the um, the neo-palatial period on Crete. So around fourteen fifty BCE um, is the end of the neo-palatial period on Crete, and linear A doesn't stop entirely as a script, but it's stops, you know, 99.9% um, as far as we can tell of, of, of the use of that script um, ends. There are a couple of artifacts that are later um, that are written in linear A. 
Um, but basically, linear A ends around 1450, um, and it ends so abruptly that um, that people think that it was effectively ended um, as a kind of as a as a kind of conscious act. Um, John Bennett has a has a nice article about this. Um, and then linear B, as as I pointed out, our earliest attestation of linear B is about 60 years later in the room of the chariot tablets. Um, there's a very strong connection between the two scripts, as the names indicate. Uh, the names were given by Arthur Evans, the excavator of Knossos. Uh, he's the one who found the first um, linear B texts. Um, and he noticed that he had three scripts at Knossos. Um, one script that was a bit more pictographic or hieroglyphic, and he called that script Cretan hieroglyphic. And then two scripts that were more linear, the, the, the form of the signs um, was more linear. Um, but he recognized that they were different from each other. And so one he called linear A, which he thought was earlier, and he was right. And one called linear B, uh, which was later. So there are a number of signs in linear B that also appear in linear A, and a number um, of the way in which signs are formed in linear A and linear B are similar, um, or, or even the same. So everyone has known for a long time that linear B um, was almost certainly developed from linear A. That is to say, um, linear A was used to write some language. We don't know what language that was, but it doesn't appear to have been Greek. And then uh, when that script was adapted to write Greek, um, some changes were introduced um, to form a new script, which we call Linear B. That's the sort of standard story. Um, there's actually a new book um, by Esther Sagarella, which argues that that's not a good way of thinking about it, that Linear A and Linear B are in fact the same script. Um, and that what we're looking at is just chronological change over time. Um, that the, the similarities between linear A and linear B are such that we're talking about the same script. Um, and that makes sense in a way, right? Because writing systems can be, or scripts can be adapted to write different languages. So, you know, the script that we use to write English can also be used to write Turkish and uh, Arabic script can also be used to write, write Arabic and, and, and Turkish. It used to be right before the reforms, um, Turkish used to be written in the Arabic script. So um, you can have a single script used to write different languages. And you can have changes over time in that script that reflect um, you know, the needs of the of the writings of the writers of that script. So um, whichever interpretation you prefer, there's a very close historical connection between linear A and linear B. Um, they're either the same script or linear B is a kind of offshoot of linear A. Okay. So if linear B is an evolution, potentially an evolution of linear A, or as you said, uh, use the term offshoot, potentially, what is it about linear B that allowed it to be deciphered at, at some point in the past. And, and to that point then, what is it about linear A that has still been a challenge to be deciphered? Yeah, so one obvious 
thing to say, get, get, get out of the way first, is that in the case of B, we knew the underlying language very well. So we know ancient Greek very well, right? It's, it's, a, it's a language that's, that's um, highly attested, let's say. Um, and it's always possible that the underlying language of linear A, the language that was, that, that was being written with linear A, is a, is a language that is um, unknown to us or not very well known to us. Um, so no matter how good you are as a decipherer, if you don't know the underlying language, um, you're never going to have the kind of decipherment that we're talking about um, with linear B or, or Egyptian hieroglyphic or something like that, right? Um, there are more linear B tablets than there are linear A tablets. There's just more text um, in the case of linear B. And I think that's a, that's a big advantage. Um, we have thousands of linear B texts and we have, um, I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but I think we have more than hundreds of linear A texts. Um, so there's a, there's a quantitative dimension. Um, the other thing I would say is that linear A texts, the administrative texts at least, um, there's some other ritual texts that are a bit more, that are different, but the, the administrative texts tend to be very short. So a typical linear A administrative text will, will be, you know, word, number, word, number, word, number, word, number. And in cases like that, I think it's very difficult to discern patterns. Um, I've worked on this a little bit, so I, I, I know the, uh, the frustration that working with linear A entails. Um, linear B tends to be a bit more formulaic. Um, so we have linear B texts that that repeat formulas over and over and over again. Um, so for a good example of this are, are texts that have to do with land holding. There are land holding texts in the near B um, from, from Pilos where um, you have the name of a person. Well, now after decipherment, we know the name of a person, that person's um, profession or some kind of designation about what that person does. And then a formula, right? Has this plot of land um, so much seed? And then the, the amount of seed that's required to sow that plot of land. So as some indication of the, the size of the plot of land. And even before the decipherment, people could tell like, oh, there's a slot that changes um, here. There's a slot that is more limited here, the, the, the sort of professional designation, and then a formula. Right? So I think that the formula is something that allows for um, discerning patterns, which is something that's harder to do with linear A. Um, but in fact, the big breakthrough with the decipherment had to do with finding place names um, in the Canossos text. So, uh, Ventris was able to kind of with a lucky guess um, identify some places in the linear B tablets whose whose names hadn't changed um, whose names were, uh, hadn't changed from the, the Bronze Age to the Iron Age um, and so we knew the names of some of these towns in Crete and, and that was one of the big breakthroughs so um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of different things that make linear B a little bit 
easier to work with um, or more conducive to decipherment. Um, but the main thing is just having the texts and knowing the language. I think those, those are the two main things. Thank you for expanding on that, Dimitri. Can you go over the corpus then? It came up a bit in the response you just uh, provided. But so in present day, in modern times, what 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 is linear B? Can you can you quantify it? Um, yeah, somewhere I have these figures in my book. I don't have them off the top of my head, but the the sites that have the most linear B tablets are Pilos and Knossos. Um, so Pilos in southwestern in the southwestern Peloponnese and southwestern Greece um, has about a thousand linear B tablets. And Knossos has a lot more. I think it's closer to 2,500 tablets. Um, but the tablets at Knossos are much shorter and more fragmentary. So in terms of how many like words we have, it's about the same between Pylos and, uh, and Knossos. So those are the two main sites. Um, and then there are another five to 10 sites that have preserved linear B. Um, so on Crete, Kanya, and Western Crete, um, there's one tablet from Iklina close to Pylos. And then there's a new set of, um, there's a new deposit that's been found near Sparta at a site called Ayos Vasilios. Um, they've got about a hundred tablet fragments so far. Um, and then a bunch of sites in the Argolid, Mycenae, Tiryns, um, a couple of tablets from Medea, and then Thebes in central Greece, and also um, Volos in sort of north central Greece. Um, am I forgetting anything? I think those are the ones. So yeah, we have about, how many sites is that? 10 sites um, with linear B. Um, but mostly when people talk about the corpora, um, the, the, main, the main corpora of texts are coming from, um, from Knossos and, and from Pylos. Okay. Um, that doesn't have to do necessarily with how many linear B texts there would have been in the ancient world. Um, so one thing that's important to keep in mind is that all of these tablets that we have were accidentally fired by destruction fires. Um, so the only way that linear B will be preserved um, for us is if the, the buildings in which the tablets were being stored um, burnt hot enough to bake the tablets and preserve them. Um, and then those, you know, I guess then, you know, ideally those deposits would not be disturbed and we would find the tablets more or less in C2. So if you don't have a destruction fire, um, you're not going to find linear B tablets. Um, so these are not the kinds of artifacts. They're not, they're not as, um, they're not as hardy as like you know, pottery or, or something like that, um, which is ubiquitous. Is it fully deciphered or is there more work to do on that topic? Yeah, there's more work to do. Um, there are some signs that ha whose values haven't been um, 
fully understood. Um, so the so the main the main core of the script um, has been you know everyone's happy with the values that have been assigned to those signs, but there are some signs we don't know what they what they stood for. Um, there's a new book by Anna Judson about the undeciphered signs. So there's a lot there's a lot of work being done on those. Um, and then you know obviously interpretation. Um, we're dealing with a writing system that was used to to write a language that we know, but of course that language that we're that we're looking at it in the late Bronze Age, right? And um, there's a 400 year gap at least until the first alphabetic Greek texts. So um, there's a lot of room for different interpretations of of specific words. Um, so so there are signs that need to be worked on. There are words that need to be worked on. Um, and then, you know, understanding what tablets are about and understanding what's happening behind the scenes. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that, that that's being done. Yeah. Um, I'm also involved in this project, um, where we're trying to digitally, digitally document the tablets from Pylos. So, you know, the, the standard way that linear view tablets have been published in the past and in the present have been a drawing um and a photograph and a um, and a transcription but you know digital technologies are allowing us to do a lot more than static photographs even really good color static photographs have their limitations um, because these are these are clay tablets that are um, very shallowly incised um so uh we've been experimenting with like three-dimensional modeling and some computational photography that allows users to manipulate um, images of the tablets. Um, and and, uh, and the, those of us who are doing that, there's also another project that's doing that on Crete. I think we're finding that, that that's really a good way forward um, to create really high resolution, um, dynamic images and models of, of linear read tablets. So there's documentation that can be done too. There's lots of work that can be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the digitization project sounds like it's a large project. The interpretation of of the the texts is probably an ongoing process. Um, it, in terms of the percentage of symbols or characters, and and when you're referencing when you're referencing um, uh, Characters. What 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 term is typically used in this context for linear B? Do you call them symbols? You call them characters? Something else? We call them signs. Um, and then there's different types of signs. So um, linear B is a, is a syllabary. That is to say, it's a it's a writing system that doesn't represent um, individual sounds, but but rather each sign stands for a syllable. Um, so you know, if you think about my name. Um, you know, in, in English, you would write it with, uh, how many letters is it? Seven letters. Um, and then linear B, it would be D, me, T, re. So four signs, right? One sign for D, one sign for me, and then two signs for tree. Um, so T, re. Uh, so the core of the writing system is a syllabary. Um, so each each of those signs is called a syllabogram. 
And then um, there are also ideograms. Um, so these are individual signs that represent usually a commodity. So like there's an ideogram for a horse, there's an ideogram for a pig, there's an ideogram for bronze, there's an ideogram for wheat, um, there's an ideogram for a man and for a woman. Um, so those are the parallel I always use for ideograms is sort of the dollar sign, right? The dollar sign is a single sign that doesn't stand for sound, but stands for the concept um, of a dollar or the value of a dollar um, or something like that, right? And then there are numerals, um, so there are numbers. So, um, so there's different types of signs that are used in linear B. Um, okay. And yeah, thank you. And so where I, where I was going with the um, with the the question, I wanted to clarify the the signs which you expanded on. So if if you were so you you said um, in a couple responses ago, uh, it's not fully deciphered, um, but it sounds like certainly a a uh, a percentage of it has has been. Um, you mentioned there's still more there's still work being done on on um, some additional aspects of it. If you were to this as a rough estimate, if you were to estimate um, what percentage of it has been deciphered, and then therefore, uh, as part of that response, we'll know uh, how much work is still needed to be done. What what percentage of of it do you believe is deciphered? That's a good question. Um, I'm sort of doing math in my head right now. I think. You know, the signs have been, I think we're between 90 to 95%. Um, you know, the signs that are, that are still undeciphered are signs that are not very commonly used. Um, so the most commonly used signs um, have for the most part been deciphered. There's some commonly used ideograms where I think there's still a lot, some debate about what exactly they represent. Um, so there's an interesting debate, for example, about the wheat. The, the ideogram that's conventionally understood as indicating wheat and the ideogram that's conventionally understood as indicating barley. Um, are those, are those, have those been correctly identified? Um, but I think there most of the, most of the work was done, most of the progress was made quite early. Um, and then in terms of the texts, I do think we have a pretty good grasp on what most texts are about. Um, so maybe in the 80s, 80% um, or so, 85%. Um, a lot of that work was done in the sort of first generation after the decipherment. So um, in the 60s and the 70s and in the, in the 80s, um, that was the main work that was being done in linear B was figuring out, you know, what are these tablets? What are, what are individual tablets and, and sets of tablets? What are they really about? What are they really telling us? Um, so I think a lot of the work that remains to be done is, is more interpretive on a, on a further, uh, I'm not explaining this well. I guess, like, I think that there's still a lot of work to be done about general interpretation. That is to say, T 
taking the text that we have and trying to say something more about the society that produced the texts, um, the economy that underli underlies the texts, the political system that underlies the text. So um, that kind of work. But, but that being said, I don't mean to minimize the importance of sort of fine-grained technical work, because I think that we're always going to need any good interpretation of linear B is going to require that kind of fine-grained, um, sort of super detailed analysis of the texts. We can't we can't allow ourselves to um, to treat the text as abstractions. Um, you know, they're they're real artifacts made by real people, and I think the the more we keep that in mind, um, the better. So, I think that. You know, it would be a mistake in some ways. As I, the way I formulated this, I sort of feel like I've implied that these different levels of interpretation are separate from each other, and I don't think that they are. I think that they each of them informs the other. So these kinds of work on signs informs um, interpretations of society, uh, and so we we need to keep doing. Um, and, and revisiting, right? Because the other thing about um, any good scholarly work is that it, it revisits old interpretations and tries to reestablish whether or not those interpretations are sound or not. Um, so we don't want to be stuck in a place where we just assume that everything that's been said in the past is correct and we just move forward. We also need to look backwards and make sure that we're on, on sound empirical footing. Um, Sorry, I'm giving you really long answers to your questions. It's, it's great. It's great, Dimitri. And when you mentioned the interpretive, uh, the interpretation as being work that still needed to be done, even the first time, I, I, under, I understood it um, because the show covers history and mythology every, every day. So these kind of um, items and considerations comes up fre fre frequently. I, I've done um, an, an entire episode uh, um, uh, where, where for, for most of it, it was looking at uh, funerary evidence, for, for instance, because we're so far back that uh, funerary evidence for the period of time was what scholars rely on to understand how the, the given um, civilization in that case um, lived and, and, fu and functioned. Other, other times, scholars are looking at who's writing about what topics and, and trying to perceive what level of biasness is, is there. And, and all the time, I understand scholars in the work that they're doing are le learning new 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 things um, that may not have been known in the past. So you're yeah you're coming through uh, loud and loud and clear and providing um, uh, excellent excellent value. Um, does an alphabet does an alphabet do you consider an alphabet to exist as part of this conversation? Yeah, so it's it's different. It's distinct from an alphabet. Um, linear B is isn't an alphabet. It's uh, it's a syllabary, um, and so it. It's the principles along which it, it operates are, are different. Um, so, so yeah, it's, 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 it's important to keep in mind that it's separate um, and apart from the alphabet. And that's been something that actually, you know, a lot of when, when linear B was deciphered, um, people who were well placed to, to understand the decipherment were, were scholars of, of ancient Greek. 
Um, and of course, those scholars of ancient Greek were used to um, thinking about Greek as an alphabetic script. Um, and so often you'll read people say a linear B is, is not a good script for writing Greek. Um, and that might be so, um, but it worked well enough for 200 years. Um, and I do think that there's a, a little bit of a, of, a, of a bias against it because it's so different from what people were used to. So for example, um, a lot of Greek words end in a consonant. Um, so my name, Dimitri, really is Dimitrios, right? Um, Dimitri's just short for that. And um, so that final sigma, the final S sound um, in Dimitrios is not represented in linear B. Linear B doesn't represent final consonants um, most of the, almost all of the time. So uh, a name like Dimitri wouldn't indicate the final S. And, you know, if you're used to writing Greek in an alphabet and you're used to writing that S, the idea that you would have a script that writes Greek that doesn't represent that final sound is bizarre to you. Um, but, you know, I, I think we don't, we, we shouldn't judge, I think it's a mistake to judge a writing system on the basis of, uh, of another writing system that you just happen to know well, right? Um, so, yeah, not an alphabet. Okay. How many symbols exist? So, um, Syllabograms, there are uh, 87. Um, and then um, ideograms, I think about, it's over 100, I'm pretty sure. 143 is the number that I, I, I have here um, that represent different commodities and so on. Um, so yeah, in, in all, over 200 signs. Okay, yeah, and I flagged after calling it, it symbols. I guess that's my uh, go go to habit. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I flagged it right after right after saying it. So yes, um, so, yes, thank you, uh, Dimitri. Um, so you mentioned this in one of your early responses. It could have been your first response. Some of the things that were written about what the uh what the writing system was used for can you can, can you uh can you expand on that a bit is can, can you um summarize or categorize um what was actually written about and when i say summarize or categorize i know there's 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 a lot that you mentioned that exists in the evidence is can, can you cover the main categories that the writing system was used for for communication sure so most of the texts are what we would call economic um, that is to say they, they focus on activities that concern the financing of the operation of these palaces so taxation for example agriculture um, animal husbandry uh, craft production, and so on. So, as I mentioned before, the texts are used as administratively. Um, you can think of them as the sort of receipts um, of a large economic operation. Um, 
that is administered from um, from the palace centers. Um, and so the palaces are collecting material. Um, they're, they're, so taxation, for example, um, agriculture, um, and then they're manipulating that material. So um, for example, animal husbandry is a big area of activity in linear B. Why are they interested in the animals? Um, well, largely because of the, they're interested in sheep for their wool, and that wool is then being woven into textiles. So the wool from these flocks of sheep are then being allocated to uh, work groups that weave, um, well, that that clean the wool and um, and and make it um, capable of being woven into cloth. So um, so sometimes you can see commodities moving through the linear text in that way. Um, and agricultural goods are being distributed to workers. Um, they're also being used to to furnish large-scale feasts, um, parties um, that the, the, the palace is either sponsoring or, or coordinating, um, and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's a tendency to think of these texts as kind of uh, boring. Um, sometimes people would call them laundry lists um, as a kind of insult, um, because again, you know, the study of ancient Greek was focused on, is focused on ancient literature, and people were disappointed when the texts that, that were found didn't have any literary qualities. But um, there are a lot of things that we can learn about the societies that produce these texts indir sort of indirectly, right? So, for example, we can name the gods, um, some of the gods at least, that were worshipped um, by Mycenaeans, um, not because the texts are interested in telling us that information, because, but because the texts are interested in tracking goods, some of which are being given to religious entities. Um, and what's kind of interesting there is that a lot of the gods um, that we see in the texts of Linear B are gods that we know from later Greek um, religion and mythology. Um, so Zeus and Hera, Poseidon, Dionysus, and Hermes, um, Artemis and Ares, um, Hephaestus indirectly, um, are just some of the some of the gods that we know about um, from later um, Greek religion. So, although the texts themselves are focused on stuff, um, by reading them through our own lenses, we can we can figure out more about the societies that produced them. Does Athena come up in Linear B? Uh, maybe once. Um, there's a, a text from Knossos um, that, and the recipient is um, Atana Potinia. So Potinia is a is a deity um, in worshipped in the Bronze Age. It looks like that's that's her name, um, Potnia. Um, Potnia becomes a kind of um, epithet or honorific. Um, that means mistress, the powerful female one. Um, so, but in the Bronze Age, it seems to be the name of a goddess, Patnia, um, and then a female goddess, right? And then Atana should be the genitive of a place. So plausibly, Athanas, that's to say, of, so then Atana Potinia 
should mean the mistress of Athens, the Patnia of Athens, um, which very well could be what later becomes Athena. Um, but that's only one attestation on one text from Knossos. So um, probably Athena, um, but not, um, not Zeus, for example, who shows up in lots of texts um, at lots of sites. Um, okay. It makes for an interesting consideration, though, or considerations on, on, that, on that point that, that uh, you made. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it informs our understanding of, of the history of Greek religion um, to a certain extent. I mean, for example, if you look at older um, texts that were that were written before the segment of Linear B, um, Dionysus was considered to be a recent addition to the Greek pantheon, right? Um, and, and we now know that that's not the case, or at least he is well established as a deity already in the late Bronze Age. Um, so, yeah, it's not that Linear B tells us everything. You know, I don't think that the absence of a goddess, so Demeter, for example, the goddess of agriculture, doesn't appear in Linear B, um, as far as we can tell. I'm not sure that, that we should conclude from that that Demeter was not worshipped in the Bronze Age. Um, but when you do have positive evidence, right, that Dionysus was worshipped as a deity in the late Bronze Age, and that's something you can do something with. Well, let's talk about positive ev evidence as a segue. So does it really not show up after, I think you said the 12, uh, 1200s, please bring it up in your, in your response as, as necessary, that uh, it, it, it stopped being used. So after the, the 1200s, it does, is there really no evidence of it being used again? Yes, um, and, and that's not too surprising. So as I mentioned, Linear B is, is used as an administrative script. It is strongly associated, um, maybe even exclusively associated with palatial administration. Um, and after 1200 BC, um, at around 1200 BC, a bunch of palaces um, are destroyed and they're not rebuilt. And the palatial system is never, um, never rebooted. Uh, so the, the palatials, the palaces go away, and um, you know at, at the beginning of the 12th century BC, and Linear B goes away with them, and the palaces don't come back, and Linear B doesn't come back. Um, so that's consistent with our understanding of Linear B as a tool of palatial administration. Um, the only way in which Linear B survives is that it survives. Uh, there's a script on the island of Crete, uh, Cyprus. Sorry, there's a script on the island of Cyprus, which continues to use um, a similar system of writing and um, and some of the same signs. And that script is used until the fourth century, or is it the third century BCE? Um, so on Cyprus, there is a continuation of, um, of this family of Aegean scripts, the, the sort of linear A, linear B family. Um, but linear B itself dies um, with the palaces. This show, for everyone listening, is, is going to cover early writing on Cyprus soon. So stay tuned. 
Everybody. Oh, good. <laughs> yep. There's an episode in the in the works. Um, a recording session this week is uh, is occurring. Um, all right. So closing question for you, Dimitri. In in everything that you you've read. In linear B, what what stands out for you as the most interesting that you came across? I think I'm going to talk about the longest sentence in all of linear B, um, which is from the, the site of Pylos. Um, and it's in a land holding text. And the sentence says, Aretha the priestess has and claims to have a true benefit for the God. But the local community says that she has um, a different type of land holding. Um, and, I, and the reason why I think it's interesting, what's cool about Linear B is that it opens this window into a society that we would otherwise have no access to, right? Um, a real historical person whose name was Aretha, who was a priestess, right, engages in a dispute with the local community about the status of her land holding. And she's claiming that she has a special kind of land, um, what I've translated as true benefit, um, because she's holding it on behalf of the God, for the God. And the local community is like, no, that's not the, that's not the status of your land. You have a regular type of land, um, uh, land. Um, yeah, we, we just, we would have no way of knowing about this kind of thing um, outside of the interpretation of the texts. And it raises all kinds of interesting questions. Um, the kinds of questions that I think um, people have been interested in asking and that we need to continue to ask. Um, you know, what's going on here? What is the, what is the, the, the substance of the dispute? But then also kind of building out from that, right? Um, who is Aretha? What's her, what's her angle here? Um, what about the local community? Um, what's it, what is its angle? What is the composition of the local community? Um, what kind of system is in place? What kind of landholding system is in place? Um, that makes this kind of dispute possible. Um, who's going to adjudicate this dispute? Because um, apparently it seems like from the text it hasn't been adjudicated because if it, if it had been adjudicated, then the, the scribe would have written, um, Aretha has this kind of land, right? And left it at that. Um, what's the role of women in the society? Is Aretha um, a good representative? of the role of women in this society, or is she more special because she's higher status, because she's a priestess, right? Um, how is land distributed? You know, all of these questions um, bear on this one sentence. And, you know, the job of linear B scholars in some ways is to try to answer those questions the best they can by looking at all the parallels, looking at all the land holding tablets, looking at all the references to priestesses, looking at all the references to the local community, right? And trying to, 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 um, to put a picture together. Now that's hard because the tablets, one way of thinking about this, the tablets shine a very bright light on a very specific spot. 
And what we're trying to understand is the context around that spot. But the, the context around that spot is in the shadows, right? And so largely what we're trying to do is we're trying to put together a puzzle in a way um, where we only have a couple of the pieces. Um, now that's always going to be a difficult and we're never going to, it's always going to be a difficult process and we're never going to get, you know, hard answers, but, um, but it's our job to try to approach, um, something that's satisfactory. Um, and I think that's the excitement about linear B is that you, you really come into direct contact, um, with real people trying to live their lives. Um, and it's our job to try to figure out what those lives were like, um, and what the, what the, the social system surrounding them, you know, how that system, um, enabled and constrained, um, it enabled and constrained them in, 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 in their attempts to, to get through, to, to live their lives. Um, so yeah, that kind of like, um, direct access to something like that, I think is, is exciting. Um, it opens up understanding and yeah. yeah. And this has been such a fascinating conversation, Dimitri. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. So again, everybody, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, Professor Nick Cassis is a director of the Western Argolid Regional Project. He's also author of the monograph, Individuals and Society in Mycenaean Pelos. I'll drop links to the project and the monograph in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Dimitri and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.